0: Good morning and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent here with my co host Sean Cheatham. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And if you would like to support us financially, we would greatly appreciate it. You can do so at patreon.com forward slash Particular Baptist. You can do a custom gift um, or you can subscribe to one of the three tiers that we have there. Um, and we want to thank our current subscribers for their continued support and your uh, support of our ministry financially. Um, but with that, I'm going to hand it off to Sean. Um, we're going to be talking about particular Baptist history today, um, but uh, Sean wanted to uh, clarify something from a previous episode before we get started. So I'll hand it off to him.
1: Yeah, um, so I wanted to go back to um, some of the things we said in the episode on self-defense, biblical self-defense and um specifically the way i spoke about um the the shooting that happened in um in the christian school i think was wrong um and that it suggested that it would be okay to stand by while the uh uh if the shooter was there for religious persecution reasons or religious reasons um that uh it would have been okay to stand by and i don't think that's correct that's wrong um and specifically uh why i say this is because um I, I set up the scenario that, well, um, could you really interview the person about why they were there? Um, well, no, you can't. So you should just you should just take them out, implying that if I was able to interview them and they were there for religious persecution, that I would uh, stand by. Um, so just to go into to why I think that uh, that's wrong, um, even if it was if they were there for some sort of religious persecution reason, I don't think it would have been right to stand by and not defend the defenseless. Um, lawless criminals seeking to murder, which even by our own government standard, that's wrong. Um, that's not the same thing as religious persecution by a government. Um, and then I want to I want to quote a little bit from uh, Nehemiah here, sort of to illustrate my point. Um, so I'll do Nehemiah four verses seven and eight. But it came to pass that when um, Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped. Then they were uh, very wroth and conspired all of them together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. And then uh, going to verse 13 and 14 here, um, Nehemiah speaking, therefore said I in the lower places behind the wall and on the higher places, I even set the people after their families with their swords and their spears and their bows. And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, be not ye afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. Um, so it, it might not immediately be obvious, but uh, there's both, um, I would say, lawless criminals and uh, government actors uh, here. Sanballat is actually the, uh, the um, governor of Samaria that's conspiring against the, uh, the Jews here. Uh, but you also have like the Arabians and the Ammonites, and they're all coming together to uh, to attack the Israelites uh, in in something that's religious. Right. They've been commanded by God to to build this wall. So that's what they're they're doing. It's a, a religious service. And um, uh, Nehemiah says, like, take up your swords and be prepared to defend your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your houses. So um, I think we have a a, a good biblical precedent here. For saying that, okay, even if it is a um, uh, even if uh, it's for religious persecution reasons, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to just lay down and take it. Um, uh, and I, I, I would view that there is a difference between a state actor and a lawless criminal um, in how that we we think about it. But there's not a substantial difference. Um, there are cases where it's absolutely appropriate to use self-defense. Against a state actor, even if it does have a, a religious element to it, as we we just saw there. Um, now, I do want to leave open the possibility that a martyr might feel that it was appropriate for them not to resist and lay down their life, and that's in both the context of government religious persecution and lawless criminals. I'm not going to make a distinction there. If it's um, if somebody thinks that this is the correct decision to do um, for their wit- uh, witness to Christ and the gospel, then I would not want to discourage them from doing that. Um, but a lot of this would probably be contextual and um, uh, the person would need to determine what was best in their in their situation. so I don't necessarily want to put out a, a cookie cutter uh, cookie cutter uh, solution to to all these things. It should be um, left up to uh, the individual on um, what they think is best in their witness to Christ. Um, And then just a a couple more uh, arguments about why I think the way we do Um, by defending, by engaging in defense, specifically talking about the context of the school shooting. We are actually upholding the law of the land. We're fulfilling the government mandate um, to to protect the innocent. Um, And I want to be clear that this is an additional reason. It's not the only reason, because um, obviously the government could come in and say that, well, you don't have the right to do that. Um, but that just because the government says it or not doesn't mean that uh, we wouldn't have the right to do it. Uh, we would still be right to intervene. Um, there are while it's normative that the uh, government is the one that puts people to death. I don't think it's exclusively the case. Um, Genesis nine six says that if uh, man is engaged in bloodshed, their blood should be spilt by man. We do see from the uh, the rest of the Bible that it's at least normative that uh, it's the um, it's the state that uh, does the uh, putting to death, but it, it, i wouldn't say that it's exclusive um, to the government. You do have the uh, case with Abraham and Lot, where the king of the area has actually kidnapped Lot, and um, Abraham and his men and go and, and kill um, kill the uh, the uh, the people that took it, uh, took Lot. Um, so it's it's clear, and this is not condemned anywhere by the Bible. Um, it's it's actually seemed to be it's upheld as a good thing. So. Uh, we see that it's um, it's appropriate sometimes for men to engage in that, um, even if the government is it's not the government as the actor who's doing it. Um, Proverbs uh, twenty four eleven and twelve indicate that we should be ready to uh, to protect the innocent. Uh, verse eleven: If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death, and those that are ready to be slain, if thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? And he that keepeth the, thy soul doth not he know it? And shall he not render it to every man according to his works? Um, so I, I think that's fairly straightforward. You know, we're supposed to supposed to protect those uh, going to the death, uh, going to their death. And obviously, the uh, school shooting I think would fit that. Um, another example where I think that even in the um, even in the administration of Christian duties, it's perfectly okay to act in self defense. Is um, and we did bring this up, I think, in the original podcast. Luke 22, verses 36 through 38. Um, uh, This is Jesus speaking that he said unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his scrip. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you that this is written, that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors for the things concerning me. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, It is enough. Um, so originally Christ sent the, uh, the disciples out to preach the gospel and told them to take no bag. Uh, and, uh, I, don't think they sword, but I don't think they weren't taking swords. Um, but now, um, he's saying that you, you will take a bag with your swords and uh, swords. So if in the original context, it was in the, uh, administration of their duties, um, as apostles, it makes sense that, okay, you're, you're taking your sword now um, for protection in your, in your duties as, as an apostle to protect yourself from lawless, uh, lawless haters of the, uh, the message. Um, this is, now we don't want to be offensive like Peter ultimately takes it with his sword, uh, chopping off the ear of, uh, someone, but, uh, at the very least, I think it's, it's reasonable to be defensive with it. Um, I do want to say that there is a, also a special duty for those that are older to protect children. And I don't, when I say that, I don't mean that there's not a duty to protect others also, um, just that there's a, a special duty to protect children. Um, and I think uh, in the original video, I conflated uh, martyrdom with self-defense when I was talking about it in that context. So I want to I want to draw that out and make a clear distinction um, that... Uh, and, and I did say this part in the podcast that when you're submitting to martyrdom, it's something that's directed towards oneself. I don't see martyrdom as being uh, as involving you standing by while other people are being killed. Um, martyrdom is very it's, it's self-focused. You're laying down purposely your life for Christ. Um, and the fact that there are other people around um, might give the indication that like maybe it's not it's really not a, a martyrdom situation. Um, but anyway just to to close on all this um I think it's it's a good way to think about it is in these situations you're you're choosing between which life you're going to you're going to protect or or keep um the innocent or the guilty um so in the case of the school shooting um if you take out the man then you're you're taking out the the man and uh, saving the lives of the innocent but if you don't, you're protecting his life and and um, uh, the innocent are actually the ones that are suffering. And that's that's not right. Um, you know, While in a martyrdom situation, I might give up my life for the cause of Christ. In the situation where other lives are at stake, I should prioritize the life. I shouldn't prioritize the life of the guilty man over the lives of the innocent, um, which is what I would be doing if I uh, stood by. So I wanted to make that correction because obviously that's a, that's a pretty big deal. Um, And I didn't want people to come off with the wrong idea and maybe hesitate in a situation where um, they actually should be willing to stand up immediately and take action. So I wanted to offer that correction there.
0: Thank you, Sean. And I was, uh, Sean and I talked last night about this, and we've been kind of sort of kicking this around um, a little bit in terms of, you know, how to, you know, how do we work through this issue? um after hearing sean explain it that way because i wasn't really um i guess kind of on board with that not that i'm i'm disagreeing with him i guess i'm just trying to work out the uh you know the implications of it um but after sean explained it today i think i'm, I'm much more uh i'm much more on that side still need to think through it a little bit more but it sounds that sounds right to me um but I think it's good that we clarify. I know we're talking about a different topic today than this, but I think it's good that we clarify these things because we want to we want to stay humble. If We have things that we need to go back and correct that we feel we need to correct. We should be able to do that and address these things. You know, we want to be as Christians were to speak truth and we want to speak as clearly and consistently as we can. And if we mess up or feel like we've messed up, we need to go back and correct it. Um, so, you know, I hope that this is, you know, it's helpful that uh, we do that and, um, and feel free to, you know, bring any feedback on these things. If you have any further things, feel free to point out issues that you see that we might uh, have in our podcast and we can look at them and, and, uh, address them if needed. But, uh, hopefully that's been helpful. Thank you, Sean. Absolutely. All right. So diving into our, our topic this morning, so we're going to be talking about particular Baptist history. So I'm going to, we're going to be doing the slide deck today. I'll pull it up here. And for those listening on the audio, sorry, you're not going to be able to see, but hopefully we'll, we'll try to, as we go along, we'll try to, you know, communicate as much as we can so that it's, uh, you can follow along while you're listening. Um, but we're going to be talking about particular Baptist persecution today. So, you know, we had Charles III coronated, I think last Saturday last week. Um, and it kind of, I guess, got Sean and I thinking about <laughs> the particular Baptists, because the, the, uh, the particular Baptists were around the time of the two previous Charleses in England, Charles the First and Charles II. Um, so this seemed like, I guess this seemed like a really good time to talk about our particular Baptist forefathers, particularly the persecution that was under those two governments. Um, and also even some of the the times that they thrived in, in religious, um, in religious toleration. Um, so it, it, it kind of worked out in that way. It's not, it's not meant to be, you know, a jab at, at the new King, but it provides a good opportunity to talk about, this is real history. They, England has a thorny history. It, it just does. And these are things that, uh, that we can, you know, talk about and, and discuss, I think in a respectful way, even to the new King without being flippant about it, but, um, so we're going to talk about that today. Just some, just some sources, you know, as we're going through this, uh, through historical presentations, I think it's good to present uh, your sources or at least the main ones that you use. So at least from my side, um, I lean heavily on the Renahan's for this. So Jim Renahan, Sam Renahan, uh, Edification and Beauty by Jim Renahan for the Vindication of the Truth by Jim Renahan. The uh, Petty France Church Parts 1 and 2 by Samuel Renahan. Uh, Samuel Ranahan's blog, I think it's just called the Petty France Church or something like that. Uh, various sites for you know different pictures in the slideshow, Michael Hyken's Kiffin, Nollies and Keach book, a Royal.uk, Anabaptist Mennonite Network website, Christian History Institute site, and Britannica Encyclopedia site. Um, so those were you know most, if not all, of my source material that I pulled from this. I don't know if you have anything you wanted to add, Sean. Um source-wise
1: no like i mean i looked at the wikipedia articles for uh for like the, the solemn league and covenant and such Oh, okay um, yeah, yeah no, nothing like a, a formal uh citation
0: okay cool 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 yeah that way you know people can't come back because there are some people that will float around out and they're like you know you you plagiarize this you plagiarize that it just keeps us you know uh all above reproach in that regard um all right so let's dive right in so Really, the the goal of what we're wanting to get to here with particular Baptist persecution is what are the lessons that we learned from, uh, you know, looking at our particular Baptist history. So we're going to do a, a high level overview of some of the the persecution and the church life and some of the political uh, context surrounding the particular Baptist at um, in the seventeenth century, or at least the early to mid late seventeenth century, um, and then look at some biblical application from that. So we're going to go ahead and dive right in. So early particular Baptists. So the early particular Baptists really came on the scene in a big way in with the uh, presentation of their first confession of faith in 1646 uh, This is the first Lenabaptist Baptist confession of faith, which is given to Parliament. So they had to present who they were or what their beliefs were at least, to parliament and this was how they did that formally speaking and they really they were a nonconformist group meaning that they were not uh, part of the church of england they didn't conform to the church of england they were their own group although they saw themselves as agreeing with a lot of their presbyterian and anglican brethren um, but they did not agree in key areas they also had to distinguish themselves as uh not being anabaptists because they were called Anabaptists um, early on. They were associated with that group um, because of the Munster incident. Uh, Munster was a very traumatizing incident for Europe and Munster's in Germany. Uh, this is where a group of, of Anabaptists, and there are different strains of Anabaptists, so you have to be careful not to lump them all together, just in the same way that the... the uh, the Reformed lumped the particular Baptists in with the Anabaptists. And some do that today, um, but we have to be careful not to do that. But this was a particular offshoot of Anabaptists um, that were headed by Jan Mathis. Uh, he was a just a, a baker. He was a baker. He was nobody important, um, but he got it in his head that um, that the New Jerusalem would be established in Münster. And not in Strasbourg as um, as originally thought. So this actually led to literally thousands of people descending upon Munster because they thought this is, you know, the end of the world was coming. This is where the new Jerusalem would be established as a Munster. So we all got to convene in Munster. Um, The world would be destroyed. The rest of the world would be destroyed. We got to convene in Munster. Um, And so they went there. And then the Roman Catholic bishop there actually uh, had an army that that tried to siege Munster. He tried to take it back. Um, And then, you know, inside there was this purging of the city, killing of all dissenters, um, although or they tried to anyways, but they ended up exploiting or uh, pushing out dissenters from Munster. Uh, Mathis was convinced to not kill them. This would not be a good look for them. So let's just get rid of them uh, out of the city. Let's not actually, uh, you know, kill them. That would not be a good idea. Um, But this did not you know, stop any siege from happening in the city. The Roman Catholic bishop there sought to take the city back. Um, but meanwhile, inside all books, but scripture were burned. Um, and then some men tried to attack the local bishop's army head on. Uh, included, this was including Mathis. Uh, he was killed, and I think it, it said he was also beheaded. And then there was a successor to Mathis, uh, Jan van Leyden. He picked up where Mathis left off. Uh, but he really lived a hedonistic lifestyle, established polygamy within Munster, was running naked through the city, just a crazy man. Um, and then in May twenty fifth, fifteen forty five, the army broke through Munster and really provided justice to uh, you know to what was going on. They killed many of them, some were captured, um, and so this this incident left a huge uh, stench in the nostrils of of Europe in general. So when these Baptists come along and they're saying, well, you know, we don't believe in infant baptism. We believe that you do need, you know, your infant baptism is not legitimate. You need to be rebaptized in order to, upon a profession of faith. Um, And there's these other views that they have. It's easy to see why they would have been considered Anabaptists. Oh, these are just, this is just another version of Anabaptism, you know, and they need to be uh, they need to be suppressed. Um, and so in the title of the Confession of Faith, the 1646, they actually um, had to specifically say that they were falsely called Anabaptists. So it's in the title because th- this they were so stigmatized in this way that they, they had to clarify who they were. These people were not, you know, uh, they were not part of the Anabaptists. We have specific theological distinctives that prevent us from falling into that category. Um, And so that the Munster incident would just leave a, would make it very difficult for the particular Baptist reputation. Um, But after they pushed through um, and got their, you know, they got their uh, confession set up. um, It didn't take long for the blowback to start. Okay. You had, you had some physical persecution at first, but not primarily um, you, I mean, you have Benjamin Cox, who was an early, he was a Anglican minister who became a, a particular Baptist and he uh, was arrested for passing out copies of the first London Baptist confession of faith outside the house of Commons. So he just put himself right in the situation where he would, uh, be physically persecuted. Um, you know, a guy who's thought to be an Anabaptist associated with an Anabaptist group right at parliament's foot, uh, you know, doorstep, that's, that's going to get you in trouble right away. So uh, he was arrested, but primarily you see written persecution. You see written persecution primarily in this way. Okay, so you see that uh, there's two men in particular that that write Thomas Edwards, um, not to be confused with uh, I don't think he has any associate with Jonathan Edwards, but Thomas Edwards uh, was a Presbyterian who was kind of a one of those heresy hunter kind of guys who was uh, very colorful with his language. And then you had Daniel Featley, who was part of the Westminster Assembly, um, uh, who they both wrote against the the particular Baptists. Um, You know, these Baptists, they weren't fitting the main reform mold as taught by those in in the high places and orthodox theological positions. But here's a little taste of kind of what they wrote. This is Featley writing about the particular Baptists as it relates to their confession of faith. He said, quote, they cover a little rat's bane a rat poison in a great quantity of sugar that it may not be discerned for among the 53 articles of their confession, there are not above six, but may pass with a fair construction. And in those six, none of the foulest and most odious positions wherewith that sect is aspersed are expressed. So it, it seems that he's saying that, you know, they're, they're probably not, it almost sounds like he's saying that they're not being very honest with how they're presenting their position. Um, he's saying they're hiding rats poison in a great quantity of sugar. So they're, they're disguising um, you know, their positions uh, by looking as good as they can. Um, Although he does say that, you know, there are some things that are orthodox that they teach Um, there. And I think when he says sect, I think he's talking about the Anabaptists. So he, he does acknowledge that there is, you know, they're orthodox in some way, but overall they're, they're hot garbage. So he, you know that writing back then, they were people were very colorful with their language. So you, you do see pushback pretty quickly. Um, and then looking at some of the broader historical context, you see Charles the first. If you look at the slide there, the the painting in the background there is of Charles the first. Um, he was king at this point, but the country was far from stable. You had civil war that had broken out. The king was unpopular. Um, So when Parliament convened to discuss, you know, like the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Assembly, the country was not in a good place at this time. Um, The very year uh, the first London Baptist Confession of Faith was published and provided to Parliament. Um, You had the king handing himself over to the Scots, who then handed him over to Parliament. And then soon after, in 1648, you had another civil war started. You had... Oliver Cromwell coming on the scene and gaining victory, okay, and uh, establishing really kind of a republic, I guess, and abolishing the monarchy. And then you have Parliament, who was not in control. Uh, The army really made decisions as it regards to Charles' fate, and then Charles was ultimately executed. He was beheaded um, with... you know, with the unpopularity that he had, he was executed on January 30th, 1649, just three years after the Particular Baptists had presented their confession. So, as the Particular Baptists are coming on the scene in a big way, trying to make themselves uh, credible in the eyes of the state, the state has its own major internal problems to deal with, with the king being beheaded. So, it it almost seems like at this point you're going to have um, a, a time where uh, it's going to be very difficult for them to to establish themselves. And Sean, I'll hand it over to you.
1: Sure. Uh, before I dive in, I do want to um, specify something. Uh, with the first London Baptist Confession of Faith, it was a it was originally written in 1644, so you'll often see it associated with that date. But uh, 1646 was the uh, second edition, I believe, and that's the more polished polished version. So that's why we've got. Uh, uh, I think that's why we've got sixteen forty six in the slides there. Um, but anyway, so um, moving on, where did this leave the particular Baptists? Um, with the removal of Charles I, the vacuum was filled by Oliver Cromwell. Uh, uh, Oliver Cromwell, excuse me, and his comrades. Uh, the particular Baptists found freedom to worship and practice under Cromwell. Cromwell was actually an independent, so he was more that mindset anyway. And uh, even in his army. Uh, there were uh, quite a few uh, Baptists that were uh, part of the army. Um, uh, but uh, Cromwell died in 1658, leaving yet another vacuum of power. Um, during Cromwell's reign, the Petty France, France Church was established seemingly in 1656. Um, this means that the freedom afforded under Cromwell allowed particular Baptists to become more established. The Petty France Church would be important for a particular Baptist down the road with Benjamin Cox and his son, Nehemiah, coming into view. Um, Two years after Cromwell's death, the monarchy would be restored uh, under Charles II, who also married a Roman Catholic and was quasi-Roman Catholic, uh, with the Roman Church accepting him into uh, into their church at his deathbed. Um, Charles II is an interesting case uh, because his, his father was accused of being Roman Catholic. And uh, he had a very, um, he had a very big reason for not wanting to see him Roman Catholic. I, From what I see, I tend to lean that he probably was, um, but I you can't definitively say, although at the very least he did on his deathbed, um, except being a member of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, but he wouldn't be in power for a very long time. Um, but with this change, uh, there came persecution for all non-conformists. Um, This was favored by the Anglicans um, who did not appreciate uh, dissent from a more nationalistic church. Um, The Clarendon codes that were also uh, published at this uh, time provided acts of punishment against those who did not conform to the state church, um, which would have included the independents, uh, like the particular Baptists. And just for a a little bit of the the Clarendon codes, there was the uh, Corporation Act, which prevented anyone not taking sacraments at a state church from holding any municipal office. The Act of Uniformity, which prevented church offices from being held by nonconformists. The Conventicle Act, and that made uh, nonconformist worship illegal, even in private houses, under a certain uh, condition. Um, you had the Five Mile Act. Nonconformist ministers could not visit or reside within five miles of any place that they enacted ministerial duties. Um, so you have these, these things that are making it hard for the particular Baptists during this time. And, um, for about the next 30 years, you're going to see non under this, uh, under this persecution.
0: Yeah, it, it's interesting that you kind of see this, that, you know, there are those today in England that don't, they're not favorable towards a monarchy, um, it it's not unprecedented that a monarchy, the monarchy was established. It was abolished for a time, for quite a while, maybe yeah. at, I think it was maybe at least ten years while Cromwell was in power. That was the case, um, and and there was more of a republican type government established. Um, but you know, the king Charles's son was floating around out there, exiled. So the monarchy. While a in a formal sense was abolished, the uh, the players who were part of that system were not gone. They didn't kill them all off. So you still have Charles II coming back and starting to um, try to, you know establish this monarchy again. Um, but it is interesting to see that in England's history, uh, you do have this symbolic system that was completely abolished for a time. Um, it is very interesting. So even if England were to try and do that today, it wouldn't be unprecedented that it that it would be done. Um,
1: yeah, I know there were people at the time that accused Cromwell of basically being a king, like that's how he was acting. Yeah. Um, whether or not that's true, that's beyond the scope of the research I did. Um, but r- regardless, like he he didn't want to be a king. They did try to put his son in place after afterwards. Um and it didn't, it didn't work. And then you do have the restoration of Charles II, but, um, yeah, there was at least a more democratic bent towards, um, towards, uh, under his, under his rulership.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's part of the reason you see this, the particular Baptist thriving so well is because of that, um, you know, is because of that uh, the The monarchy is is not trying to push a church system upon you. And Cromwell, being an independent, he obviously is not going to be uh, in line with a state church. Um, although I, I, if I remember correctly, I think he did try to establish some religious rules that were, you know, to be enforced by government. But I could be wrong about that. But I seem my, to recall that.
1: Yeah, my recollection is that it didn't matter who was in power, of the Protestants that. Roman Catholics were always out. um, And I I think that was the case under Cromwell. In fact, I I know it has to be the case because um, Cromwell's armies in uh, Ireland were still, I believe, trying to subdue the the Catholic population. That is correct. Yes. Um, They
0: actually killed many Roman Catholics there, I believe. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Cromwell gets accused of war crimes. And from my understanding, there were... Actually, war crimes committed in the the campaigns in Ireland, but Cromwell was not personally leading the armies, so it's it's a little bit up in the air whether or not like he was aware of exactly what was going on. Obviously, if there were war crimes committed, we would we would repudiate that absolutely. But I know Roman Catholics like to completely bring down. Well, some Roman Catholic apologists like to completely bring down Cromwell, and I don't know that all that they say is quite fair about him.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't think we would agree with how he got into power. <laughs> but yeah, you know, yeah, we wouldn't agree with that necessarily, but um it, it's more that the good came in spite of what we would see as as a problematic uh, you know, method of getting into power. God worked mightily in in the particular Baptist during this time and he, they took advantage of the freedom that they that resulted in this even if they may not have agreed how that how it got there. Um as we, we do see them starting to, you know, starting to meet and starting to kind of try to establish themselves, um, during Cromwell's rule. Um, but unfortunately it wouldn't last very long. I mean, you had, uh, you know, we have more persecution coming on the scene, um, jumping to another particular Baptist character, Edward Harrison. Uh, he was an early particular Baptist and he was a member of the Petty France church. This was a kind of a, a centralized, uh, a well-known church of Particular Baptists at the time, when I mean, you had um, Particular Baptists in different places, but I think this was this was kind of a central hub of Particular Baptist life. Um, and and again, you had you know a pretty active uh, time during during Cromwell's rule with associative uh, an associated meeting taking place in 1658, with Particular Baptists, which included William Kiffin, who was a signer of the first London Baptist Confession and a signer of the second um and, and a pretty prominent figure in, in his own right he was a merchant very wealthy man had a lot of influence um but they were trying to take advantage of the freedom they had but it wouldn't last very long when cromwell uh passed away charles ii returned he returned in 1616 and then the Clarendon codes were enacted and the petty French church in london came under fire it didn't take very long um this is i reader. to read a, Brief section from Sam Renahan's book, The Petty France Church, Part 2, on page 107-108. He says this, quote, On June 15, 1662, soldiers disturbed the church in Petty France, badly wounding a young boy, and incarcerated the unnamed preacher, likely Edward Harrison, in Newgate. On 29 June, they returned and broke the gallery of the church. Another spy report in 1664 named Benjamin Cox working together with Mr. Harris Harrison Edward Harrison and Mr. Toll, Samuel Toll, end quote. So notice that this this is only two years after Charles II comes back. So it in the implementation of the Clarendon Code. So you you see very quickly that there is this um, there is this push against nonconformists. They were serious about enforcing this law, enforcing uh, you know the pushing out nonconformists, and so they did so with force. I mean they they were attacking children basically. And sending spies into the Petty France Church, um, so it it's almost like something out of an espionage movie or something. But they were they were spying on the church. They were um, using force against uh, the particular Baptists because they were not conforming to what the state said they should participate in in worship. Um, but it doesn't seem that the the particular Baptists were undeterred. They kept going. Uh, they kept pushing. Uh, you see, uh, you know. Nehemiah Cox, just eight years later, this was Benjamin Cox's son. He would be in prison for preaching. Um, Sam Renahan says in, in his Petty France Church Part 1, page 76, quote, Nehemiah was in prison for affirming that the Church of England was not a true church. And then Renahan even quotes some of the deposition against him, uh, you know, in gathering the evidence. It says, quote, and the said Nehemiah Cox did aver and say that the Church of England as it sta- now stands, is an anti Christian church, and that this meeting at which they are now taken is the way of Christ and according to the word of God. And how much, not much different than uh, what we would probably say today about the Church of England, um, that it is not a true church. Um, and uh, there's a lot of uh, unbiblical practices that are going on there. And especially you look at uh, what's happening today with the acceptance of wicked lifestyles in the Anglican Church and the abandonment of you know some of those core doctrines, uh, Nehemiah Cox would probably have stronger words to say today yeah. about the Church of England. I mean, if it was bad back then, look at how it is now.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I also find it humorous because one of the major issues that we would have with the uh, Church of England, not not saying that there aren't Anglicans that are their true brothers, obviously, that that is true, but uh, yes. one of the issues we would... Uh, have with the Anglican Church, just you have a secular head as the secular ruler's head of the, uh, the yes. Anglican Church, and yeah. I find it very humorous that, like, with in the case of James II, who's overtly Catholic, sometimes you'll have people that are not even of the same religion the head of the the, the church, and it's a, it's a different religion. Like, <laughs> right? It's a, it's a it's a little bit of an indication that like mm, something might not be right here, but. <laughs> Um, were you, were you, oh yeah, you were done. We were moving on to my section. Yeah. Um, so Cox would be in prison for, uh, about a year. And after his release, he would, uh, go back to serving at the church he was serving at prior to his arrest. And actually John Bunyan was ordained pastor of the church that Cox was serving at, uh, in December of 1671. Um, then you have the Thomas Collier incident we've, we've talked about in uh, past episodes. Um, Mm -hmm. on the scene in the 1670s, and then the 1677 London Baptist Confession of Faith um, came out shortly after that in order to publicly distance themselves uh, from the errors of Collier, uh, especially given that he was from their ranks and spouting anti-Trinitarian heresy and and other things, Um, and he had made a name for himself among the particular Baptists initially. Um, We also do see the particular Baptists involved in politics um this is interesting to note given the clear separation between the kingdom of christ and the common kingdom as found in particular baptist theology uh so it's clear that despite the differences between um particular baptists and presbyterians on the role of government in the uh, church that that shouldn't be taken to mean that particular baptists didn't believe that christians couldn't be involved in politics at all just um as some of the anabaptists had believed some of them were uh Uh, The Anabaptists of the Swiss regions, I believe, uh, believe that Um, there was no uh, from the particular Baptist perspective. They didn't want a state established church or a sacralist uh, mindset, Um, yet they did see themselves as citizens and social changers. Um, And some used uh, this to their advantage to help stop persecution. There was a movement to stop the persecution of Baptists in uh, New England, and uh, Kiffin, Cox, and others were involved in trying to stop the Congregationalists from creating hardships uh, for the Brethren. Um, uh, they wrote um, this, as, uh, as found in Renahan's Petty France Church, uh, Part 1, and this is page uh, 173. It seems strange that such is the same way in New England, yea, even such who chose rather uh, sorry, dot, 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 who chose, rather, dot, 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 to depart from their native soil into a wilderness, then be under the imposition and lash of those who, upon religious pretenses, took delight to smite their fellow servants, should exercise towards other the like severity that themselves, with uh, so great hazard and hardship, sought to avoid. So, in other words, the Congregationalists uh, sought to avoid persecution in England, and so they left and went to New England, and uh, now they're uh, persecuting Christians who differ from them. And they felt that this was hypocritical, especially because it was about liberty of conscience issues. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then in 1685, we see the rise of uh, James II, since Charles II passed away. James in 1687 ended all nonconformist punishment and uh, Neo, uh, Maya Cox expressed uh, thanks to the king. Um, it did seem from what I had uh, read that, uh, James might have been doing this more as a um, as a way of getting uh, persecution against Roman Catholics to stop. That he was doing this for everybody, essentially. Um, and uh, but regardless, it was done for for everybody. Um, then there was the campaign to pack Parliament with uh, MPs who were favorable to the king's agenda, and Nehemiah Cox was among the regulators uh, who helped with this endeavor, essentially working with the king. Um, and in 1689 the act of toleration was passed giving religious freedoms to dissenting groups uh, but they could not serve in office so um, moving to the last slide all right so wh- what are some what are some lessons that we we might learn from here um, the first one might be uh, might be uh, put not your trust in princes and I'll, I'll i'll quote the verse here this is psalm 148 Six verses three through five. Um, put not your trust in princes nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help, but breath goeth forth. Uh, his breath goeth forth, he returneth to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. So, even if you do have a, a period, a good period under Oliver Cromwell, right. That's immediately followed by uh, religious persecution of a sort that seems to be worse than what was, what came before. Um, So regardless, like, oh, well, you know, we have a good, we have a good king now, we're all good. That's not necessarily the the case. What God gives, he can take away. Um, It's ultimately his purposes, and uh, it might be better for the sanctification of his church to not have a, a good king over them. Um. We should also expect—oh, uh, did you have any thoughts about that?
0: No, that, that's just a really good point, that um, we shouldn't expect a Christian king or a Christian ruler. We should just serve God where we are, whatever king or emperor or president or whatever the case might be where he has us, um, and continue to be good witnesses for the Lord. Um, as you know, we're teaching through those of you who don't go to our church that are listening— we're going through the book of Daniel right now Um, and I'll be teaching on Daniel six tomorrow, but we see, you know, like Daniel and his friends and the Jews are living under a pagan monarch, but they're serving God faithfully where they are. Um, So and Daniel, wasn't trying to overthrow the king, this pagan king who clearly hated God uh, in, in multiple Kings, not just Nebuchadnezzar, you have a son, uh, son or successor of Belshazzar. And then we're going to look at, uh, you know, the darius but you you see this you know these lines of pagan kings but daniel continues to serve god where he's at um and i think you can kind of see that here with the particular baptist too where even though they did try to enact social change legally they weren't doing it by force um at least some of at, at least most of them were um you do see them trying to use the means that they had to enact change to make their lives better so that they could worship God in the way that they saw without the hindrance of persecution. But at the same time, they still sought to obey God rather than men, regardless of who is in power. So that's a good point you bring up, Sean. Um,
1: Yeah, and then the next next point is um, although the level of persecution might wax and wane, Christians should be ready for it. Um yes. and then I'll quote here first Peter verses four first uh, uh, Peter four verses twelve through fourteen, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though something strange uh, as so some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. So um, if you were to put yourself in the context of a particular Baptist living in the in the 17th century here, right, it might seem that like, well, what happened here? We actually had it good under Cromwell, and now we've got a king coming in that's doing these these wicked things like what, what's going on here. But the Bible says we should expect that right all that live a godly life in in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution not that that persecution always looks the same not like every single christian is always under the the threat of death but there's going to be some sort of persecution there um so we should we shouldn't be surprised if fiery trials and this would constitute at least one type of fiery trial come upon them um but that sort of thing produces perseverance and hope and demonstrates that we are who we say we are mm-hmm. um so I think that's a, a good takeaway here. Um, the, the final uh, takeaways, I guess, that I'll talk about is um, to don't turn around and support the persecution of other Christians. Um, because And really, it's because the arm of the state can just as easily persecute others as yourself. With the, uh, with the, the Presbyterians, there, there's, we could have a whole uh, podcast episode on just what happened with the Presbyterians, how <laughs> they were initially in power and trying to enforce the uh, the reformed religion as they saw it. And then later, they're actually the ones under persecution. Um, the arm of the state, it can just as easily persecute you as, as anyone else, right? It's it's like maybe it's it's because I'm politically more libertarian, but I'd rather just not even give the state that power in the first place, you know? Um, just it's not like it, what you give to them, they can easily turn around and, and take it out on you. And then you do have the example of the hypocrisy of the uh, the Congregationalists who fled um, in, uh, England for for liberty of conscience issues, and then the Baptists who are are also Christian and had liberty of conscience issues. They're the ones that are are persecuting them. You have the example of um, I think it was Obadiah Holmes, who's who's uh, was tied up to a post and lashed uh, for for preaching um, Baptistic doctrine. So. Um, yeah, it's, it, 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 it because it seems very hypocritical.
0: Yes. Uh, it's, it, it is interesting when you see it in, and you don't see, I mean, I guess you could argue that it was Christian against Christian, maybe in England. Um, if you're assuming that there were Christians among the Anglicans, well, <laughs> um, but it was more, it seems to be more in new England in the new world that you see the persecution of Christian among Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, which I find very interesting,
1: yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to see how um, Anglicans involved in the persecution of other Christians like, I mean, people sin, like, people fall into grave sin. So, I'm yeah. not going to definitively say that they weren't yep. Christian. Um, people in the pews may not have necessarily been, been that way. Um, but I, yeah, yeah, it, it does get it does it, it raises your eyebrows sometimes when you hear about Christians and they're persecuting other christians like you don't want to definitively say that they're not christians but like it's like well you're you're clearly not demonstrating it right now at the very least
0: yeah yeah exactly they they may just have uh, people were men of their they were men of their time you know it was it was natural to you know with the probably with the state church mindset integrated in your whole life if there's something that disagrees from the majority religiously speaking maybe the natural response was just to persecute them Without stopping to say, wait, 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 wait a second. These are brothers in Christ. So we need to slow down, and I think that's what you kind of see with Kiffin and others pointing out to the congregation. It's like, look, slow down, guys. You're they're brothers. Why are you attacking them? You know, you won't. They're basically pulling the golden rule card, right? Do unto others you would have them do to you. You don't want the state persecuting you, so why are you persecuting your brothers? You know, they're just trying to worship uh, as they see fit. Um, stop picking on them it's not biblical you're, you're being hypocritical here um, and, and then you do see later on and I think uh, Renahan points this out in one of his books is how the baptists had an influence later in American life with the constitution and establishing religious freedom uh, how they they uh, you know reached out to George Washington about religious freedom and then lo and behold you see in the constitution um, this uh, you know statement about religious freedom coming out so you do see this starting to come on the scene later this idea of religious freedom and toleration but um it seems that that state church mold just was really hard to break for people so you know there is a sense where you know we can look back and criticize um and it's okay to do that but at the same time we also have to remember that these were men of their time and that um you know they they were influenced by the world around them just because they were christians doesn't mean that or may have been christians doesn't mean that they had all of those things abolished and they're thinking like 21st century believers
1: mm-hmm.
0: all right well i think that's all we got for today um brief history lesson hopefully it's been helpful lots of resources out there on this stuff again at if you really want to deep dive into particular Baptist history, um, Sam Renahan's Petty France Church, parts one and two, two different books. You can find them on Amazon um, the, for the Vindication of the Truth, which is a, a brief exposition on the first London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, you can find history in Renahan's second one to the Judicial and Impartial Reader. Um, they're from Founders Press. Um, And there's, there's others out there that you can get on particular Baptist history, but um, there's a lot of recovery going on in recent years. And now on, you know, the history specifically surrounding particular Baptists. So there's a lot there we can pull from and learn, like, you know, we're taking these applications and putting them on uh, to Christians today and saying, how can we learn from how our forefathers acted or didn't act, or maybe should have, you know, been better at, at doing or whatever the case might be. Um, but there's a lot we can learn here uh, god has given us these things for us to uh, to to learn from and bruce good to see you man um you know glad it was helpful hopefully it's it's beneficial um uh, hope you guys are doing well um, but yeah hopefully this has been beneficial everyone and uh we'll leave it at that lord willing uh, we'll have something out next week and everyone have a great lord's day and uh, we'll talk to you soon